0: we go everybody another edition of jamal about sports coming to you on a wednesday december 18th 2019 kicking off the show a little social distortion mike ness's band with the song bad luck as always i'm your host jamal hayden thanks again for joining us here uh we got a big show to get to we've got uh, nfl as the playoff picture starts to come into focus We will discuss uh, a little bit of the NBA, uh, specifically the New York Knicks making a coaching change, which I know happened last week. We didn't get to it on last week's show. And a little Major League Baseball, uh, some hot stove uh, happenings, uh, including uh, the Mets and uh, some potential good news for the Mets moving forward as far as the ownership situation is concerned. Wanted to get to that last week, didn't get to that either. But we begin with uh, the announcement yesterday by the Ford family. Martha Firestone Ford, uh, her daughter Sheila Hamp, uh, Sheila Ford Hamp, and uh, Rod Wood, who is the president of uh, the Lions, uh, announcing that they uh, are retaining the services of General Manager Bob Quinn and Head Coach Matt Patricia for next year and that they intend, as per Martha Ford's words, to be a playoff contender. Next year. Um, Much to the dismay of myself, many other Lions fans, uh, several members of the uh, Detroit media that cover the team on a daily basis. Um, There are uh, exceptions to the rule. If Twitter is any indication, um, there are some, uh, unfortunately for them, delusional fans that think that uh, for whatever reason, Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia are the answer. Uh, we have I have listed out the reasons uh, ad nauseum at this point on this show as to why Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia are clearly not the answer uh, to the question How are the lines ever going to con- uh, become a consistent contender and serious organization um, again in a league where you really should never have to be bad for an extended period of time because all the rules are set up from the way the draft works to salary cap to the way the scheduling works for teams to never have to be bad for an extended period of time. Of course, the Lions have managed to pull off this neat trick for many, many years. And then specifically, of course, during the Matt Millen era, right? So eight years of complete and abject failure started with, you know... Again, it, it, it's, it it's, it's weird. The... Unfortunately, the, the similarities are eerily striking here, right? Um, Matt Millen took over a team that had gone nine and seven. And were it not for a Paul Ettinger, who was a mediocre kicker at best, were it not for a Paul Ettinger 53 yard field goal on Christmas Eve day in the year 2000, um, were it not for that, or was that 99? I'm trying to remember now. When, no, I think Morton Wake's first year was one So yeah, in 2000, the Lions would have gone 10-6 and 6 and made the playoffs. And it's highly likely that, um, and that was during the Bobby Ross era. I remember Bobby Ross uh, retired or quit in the middle of that season with the Lions uh, in the middle of a three-game losing streak. I believe they were 5-2. and two. They went to 5-4. and four. Gary Moeller, who was a former Michigan head coach uh, and who was the linebacker's coach slash associate head coach or assistant head coach on that team, took over. Uh, and looked like as if the Lions were going to, uh, it was 2000 because that was the year the Lions went into the Meadowlands and uh, beat the pants off literally the Giants as Jason he- Seahorn was trying to pull his pants up uh, and chase Johnny Morton down from behind <laughs> on the same play. And I was actually at that game because that was back in the days when a great family friend of ours was one of the assistant coaches for the Lions by sheer coincidence. I've been a, I've been a Lions fan since 1980, I think, as anybody probably even before that. But I, I'll say my my real fandom began actually in 1979, Billy Sims' rookie year. Um, so in any event, uh, I've been a, I'd been a Lions I've been a Lions fan for you know the majority of my life. Um, but it just so happened that a great friend of our families had been with Coach Ross wherever he'd been. Maryland, Georgia Tech, San Diego, up until the point where he took the Lions job, and then was also on that staff. And so I actually got to be around that team a lot, um, because I was invited out for minicamp in 98, and I was there for minicamp in 99. So I was there Barry's last year, what ended up to be Barry's last year. Minicamps were in April back then, they were right after the draft. And then I was there in 99, post-Barry. Um, and got to spend, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, you know, on the field, uh, you know, in, in the locker room, uh, in the, at training table with, you know, coaches and players alike. And it was a a phenomenal experience. Um, you know, uh, before I get into ripping (laughs) this decision, I want to look back on some happier times. And, um, I got to spend time with guys like, uh. Mark Spindler, Johnny Morton, uh, Corey Schlesinger, Mark Carrier, uh, Ryan Stewart, just to name a few. All and these names stand out because they were all great guys. James Jones, a defensive tackle uh, from Northern Iowa. Uh, these guys stand out because they were all great guys. You know, I, I hooked, I got hooked up, so to speak, with a, a guy named Danny J. Dan. Uh, oh, geez, Dan, Dan Jarlwich. Danny J is what we called him. He'd been a longtime equipment manager for the Lions. And so I hung in his office in the morning, got to the Silver Dome in those days. It was pre-Ford Field at about 6.30. Again, this is a Lions mini camp in April 20 plus years ago or thereabouts. And um, the Lions staff was getting to to the Silver Dome at 6.30 in the morning. That's how hard they worked. So, you know, this idea that only Bill Belichick invented hard work and, 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 and a, a somewhat um, uh, fanatical, shall we say, um, devotion to working hard. No, 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 no. Lots of teams in the NFL do it. And Bobby Ross's staff was certainly no exception to that. Um, and so anyway, we'd hang out in, the, uh, in, in Danny Jay's office for a while, which was right off of the Lions locker room. Guys would come in and out. Shoot the breeze, um, and all great guys. Really, it was a, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and then we'd go out to the field, and you know, I did everything from literally man the chains during scrimmages to having warm-ups with Scott Mitchell to snapping the ball to Mike Tomzak, who was one of the backup quarterbacks uh, back then. Having a catch with Jim Zorn, who was a quarterbacks coach. I mean, it was it was really a dream come true. Running, you know, wide receiver. Being a fake wide receiver against the D-backs, Dick Seltzer, who was the D-backs coach then at the time, asked me to come over and help him out with some drills. It was phenomenal. It was a phenomenal way to spend the weekend, two years in a row. Um, went out in 99 for my first and only Thanksgiving Day game when they beat the Bears with Gus Farrat at quarterback. Um, after Charlie Batch, I think he gotten hurt. Uh, and... Um, Got to go to the, the Silverdome in the offices the next day after the win. And uh, that was the year I believe the Lions got out to an 8-4 and four start and lost their last four games. It is. And then still ended up getting into the playoffs uh, and then getting hammered by the Redskins, who have long been a nemesis of the Lions. But in any event, uh, got to go to this facility the next day. Saw guys like Herman Moore. Uh, Charlie Sanders, star, tight end, Hall of Famer, uh, who was my dad's, one of my dad's, uh, heroes growing up. Um, and then got to go spend time with Coach Ross in his office. And, uh, what a hell of a guy. Really just a sweet, nice guy. Um, you know, unfortunately he ended up, uh, stepping down the following season. And and, and I think, you know, the rumors are that the reason he did that was because he got wind of the fact that Bill Ford Jr. was sniffing around the Matt Millen uh, situation, and he pretty much got fed up. Because, you know, remember, in those days, for better or worse, Coach Ross made a lot of the personnel decisions. Some of them, by the way, were not really good. We're we're, we're bad. I'll be the first to admit it. As much uh, personal uh, uh, affinity as I have for him, uh, he made some boneheaded decisions, the, the biggest one of which was letting Kevin Glover go, their starting center, who Coach Ross coached at Maryland, and he knew all about who Kevin Glover was, and he was a mainstay and a staple on that offensive line, he and Lomas Brown, for for many, many years, all through the Barry Sanders years, and they were both perennial all-pros, great players, uh, and they let him go for a guy named Jim Pine from Tampa Bay, who was an unmitigated disaster, uh, but in any event, it was, it was a fun uh, couple of weeks, but... The reason I, I, and I got off a little bit of a tangent here, but the reason I mention it is because, you know, I've, I've been at times extremely close to this team and organization. And, and frankly, right now, uh, you know, but, again, you put the losing aside. I, I've been a fan of this team forever. They, they've hardly ever won with any consistency you know i stuck it out all through the matt millen era and 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 that was enraging on a, on a lot of levels not just because of the incompetence but again because of the arrogance that matt millen displayed all the time and that's what this regime reminds me of too again it's smartest guy in the room syndrome right you know matt millen cavalierly got rid of pl- good players like johnny morton cuz he didn't like his personality cuz johnny morton by the way was a progressive thinker and, you know, kind of an out there, a little bit personality. But John Morton's also a guy who meticulously took care of his body and was a hell of a player. And they got rid of him for Bill Schrader, who was a Packers wide receiver, who was, you know, okay. And he came to the lines. And, of course, he was awful for the lines. And they believe his nickname was Alligator Arms because he would never try to lay himself out and go over the middle for a tough catch because he was afraid he was going to get lit up by safety. Because in those days, that actually happened. Not Not in today's football where, you know, Guys go over the middle without ever fearing getting hit by safety because of the new rules. Um, and so, you know, th- it's kind of similar to dumping Quandre Diggs this year because he's not, you know, a Patricia guy or a Bob Quinn guy personality-wise, even though the locker room loved him, and he's a good player. And I understand he had had a bad start to the year for the Lions. Uh, Jared Davis didn't have a bad start to the year for the Lions? No? Jared Davis had a horrendous career so far for the Lions. But he's a Patricia guy. He's a Bob Quinn guy. And look, I, I, I don't want to disparage Jared Davis. Listen, I, I love it's great that the guy eats, drinks, and sleeps football and is a team first guy. Doesn't mean Quandre Diggs wasn't, but, you know, I get it. Jared Davis is a coach's dream. If you've ever played football, which I did, and I don't care what level that you played – You've all had a guy like Jared Davis on your team. It's a guy that the coaches love, but it's not very good, and the other players kind of roll their eyes behind the guy's back because the coaches will probably inordinately call out the few good plays he makes while ignoring the bad plays he makes, and you lose all credibility with your locker room. I I mean, I certainly experienced that in my career. Um, But so this reminds me very much of that, that, that turning point when... You know, 9-7 wasn't good enough. They needed to make a big splash. So they got rid of uh, the whole regime, brought in Matt Millen. And Matt Millen produced, turned out to be, inarguably, by the way, just, if you just go by record, the worst general manager in the history of the NFL. The first team to go 0-16, that was on Matt Millen's watch. Again, that was more than 0-16 because it was really 1-23 because they uh, had lost, they went 1-7 in their last eight games in the second half of the season before the Owen 16 year. So 1-23, they win, what, four years without winning a road game? I mean, just setting all kinds of dubious records all happened under the Matt Millen watch. Finally, Bill Ford Jr. made a comment at a business event and then it finally spurred his father, who's you know no longer around, William Clay Ford, to get rid of Matt Millen. But of course, what did the Lions do? They... They, they, you know. Listen, I understand at the time you want to keep Martin Mayhew as the interim GM. That's fine. He was an assistant to Millen. He was part of the, the the disaster, and of course they elevated him to be the general manager. But I will say this: at least for Martin Mayhew, again, while I was no fan of his track record and his body of work overall, at least he brought in some stars, and at least. They made the playoffs in 2011, no small feat considering three years prior to that they had gone 0-16 and then 2-14 and then 6-10. And then they made the playoffs again in 2014 with Jim Caldwell and really should have won the playoff game in Dallas. But then Bob Quinn announced, you know, then Bob Quinn was brought in because the following season in 15, the Lions got off to a horrendous start at 1-6. Martha Ford decided to fire Mayhew and and Tom Lewand, which is fine. Although I will say in retrospect, maybe Tom Lewand was really the main problem. And again, they were sort of a package deal, I guess. Um, But I mean, you know, Mayhew signed Golden Tate. Mayhew signed Glover Quinn, two excellent free agent acquisitions. Who's Bob Quinn signed that's been a good free agent acquisition so far? Nobody. Don't talk to me about Trey Flowers either. Trey Flowers is a nice player. He's a good, hard-working player. I get it. But he's being paid superstar money to be a good, solid, above-average player. reason Trey Flowers is here, all you uh, Lions and, and, and Patricia acolytes can sit there and tell me it's because he loves Matt Patricia. There's 90 million reasons why Trey Flowers is here, okay? Because the Patriots sure as hell weren't giving him any $90 million. Because they're smart. And it's amazing how Quinn and Patricia have not taken any of the lessons you would have think that, that would have been imparted to them by their time spent in New England. So Martha fired those folks, brought in Quinn. Quinn decided to keep Caldwell, fired Caldwell because 9-7 and wasn't good enough. Just like back in 2000, 9-7 wasn't good enough. And Bob Quinn, since he's been here, has presided over one of the the worst talent acquisition Reigns, if you will Of any team in the last four years I mean, The Lions roster is Devoid of difference makers And the few that Do exist on the roster were here Before Bob Quinn got here I think maybe you could Say one is Kenny Galladay Who again in typical Lions Fashion is being thought of As being much better than he is Because the rest Of the talent around him is so poor and I like Kenny Galladay, and he's a very good player. He is not, as I read in one article today, one of the top receivers in the NFL. He's just not. He's really good. He's not that good. Now he may get there. This was his third year, and Kenny Galladay is certainly not part of the problem as far as talent on the roster is concerned. But what is part of the problem is that, you know, again, the Detroit media. The the Lions front office themselves, they look at him and they all pat themselves on the back and say, look, look at this superstar. He's not a superstar. He's a really good player. He's not Michael Thomas. He's not even Mike Evans. He's not Cooper Cup. He's not a lot of stud receivers in the NFL. Again, really good player. I have nothing against him. But if that's all Bob Quinn has to show as far as impact players, and it is, that's not good. That is not good. So, look, the Ford family announced yesterday that, you know, they feel that there was improvements made, specifically Patricia, Patricia, you know, he went from being a bully and a bore and a, just an overall jerk his first year to apparently, I guess, he's learned some lessons. I would, of course, the cynic in me would say he's been he's been cowed because the team is a joke. His record is nine twenty and one in two years, and his bread and butter defense has been an absolute abject disaster. By the way, before Matthew Stafford got hurt, his defense wasn't any good. And so maybe that and the and the questions up until yesterday about his job security, now all of a sudden he's playing nice with the media. Now you, I guess you could you know the non-cynic could say he's he's displaying personal growth, and I hope that is the case. We'll see. We'll see if by some dumb luck the lines are any good next year, and then have you know some controversy or some adversity, and then we'll see how we'll see the new change, Matt Patricia how he handles the media. When, you know, if the Lions are, let's say, by some miracle, 8-4 and four next year, and he has one of his patented bonehead clock management uh, issues cost them a game to knock them down to 8-5, and, and he gets questioned about it, let's see how, how genial he is with the press then. Now listen, I'm going to go right, I've been on record, I don't like Matt Patricia. I don't like him. I don't like his personality. I don't like people who behave like him. So, I will admit, I am not rooting for him. I root for the players. I want my team to be good, but I don't like him. I don't like Bob Quinn. Bob Quinn seems smug and arrogant to me with no reason to be. Patricia the same, by the way. Now, do I hope maybe these guys do some some self-evaluating and and are are self-critical? Maybe Bob Quinn knocks it off with his nonsense draft philosophy, trading up, ignoring impact players for, you know, choir boys that can't play, being rigid in the way they view players and and, and their personalities. Yeah, I hope they do. I don't think they will, but I hope they do. I mean, and look, and so the Ford family said, well, look, we we understand it's gonna make a lot of fans unhappy, and the easy decision would be to fire these guys, but we feel that there was some real growth, and we liked and, and we saw some improvement early in the season before all the injuries. Um news flash, before Stafford got hurt, the team was 3-4-1. And, and don't talk to me about a close loss to the Chiefs, and don't talk to me about the robbery on Monday night in Green Bay. Yeah, you got screwed by the refs. I'll be the first to admit it. The Lions would have been 3-1-1 one and one after that point. I understand all that. But again, in the Chiefs game, boneheaded decisions by Kerryon Johnson cost them that game. Justin Coleman, highest-paid slot corner in the NFL, had a chance to intercept Pat Mahomes in the end zone late in the game, couldn't do it. Lions had a chance to win the game on 4th and eight and get off the field. Mr. Defensive Guru, Pat Matt Patricia, didn't decided to not put a spy on Mahomes, and he ran 15 yards for a first down. So I don't want to, So three, four, and one—that's acceptable to you? Because guess what? That's about under 500 over the course of a whole season. So that's the great improvement <laughs> that was shown. I'm sorry, you were six and ten in Patricia's first year. And I love this idea that Patricia came in his first year, alienated half the roster, acted like a jerk to everybody. And so he gets to b- benefit from that by showing improvement by not being a jerk this year. Hallelujah. hallelujah. That's what count. That, that's, that's what counts for success and improvement around here, I guess, in Lionsville. I mean, again, this is why. <laughs> I, it's a constant theme on the show. You can—it's—you might have an occasional... Although the lines rarely have an occasional. But some organizations, some teams in various sports may have an occasional, you know, stars align, everything breaks their way season. Like the Mets had in 86, although the Wilpons weren't the only owners then. No, Doubleday was still part of it. But even in 2000... Well, he was still part of the 2000 too. 2015... Right, They made the World Series. They had a magic carpet ride run there. I mean, you can get it, but but when you have bad ownership, you're doomed. You are ultimately doomed to ever be consistent and good. Look at the Steelers. They have great ownership, always have, the Rooney family. By the way, who runs the Steelers personnel department? Kevin Colbert, former Lions personnel guy. But look at the Steelers, right? We talked about all year how much I love Mike Tomlin, what a great job he's done, all the injuries, the defections, all the talent that's been lost off that roster, and yet they're still competitive this year and fighting for a playoff spot. And yes, they've had three coaches in 40 years. But the reason they've had three coaches in, in 40 years, or maybe longer, is because they have solid ownership. The Lions' ownership, while well-intentioned they may be, has been a joke. Since the Fords bought the Lions, and I think 1964, they've won one playoff game. That's, that's 55 years. That's insane. They've won one playoff game since and then and the one playoff game they won by the way was in 1991. That's coming up on 30 years. It's going to be 2020 in about 2 weeks. It's crazy. And what's and and look, they've had different players, coaches, GMs. What's the one constant? The Ford family. You cannot overcome bad ownership. Look at the Knicks with Dolan. Ever since he took the reins, they have been a complete and utter joke. They've had Isaiah Thomas, Phil Jackson, Donnie Walsh, who was doing a good job until Dolan got in the way and Walsh decided to leave. But I mean, all kinds of different coaches, players, GMs, they're a joke every single year because Dolan is the worst. Because he doesn't provide an environment where people can thrive. Now I don't know enough about the inner workings of the Ford family and and how they operate. They certainly seem to be loyal to a fault, but why nobody can come here and actually do a good job for over an extended period of time is beyond me. It's it, I have not, I wish I had the answers. I wish I did because if I did, I'd write a, a, a an impassioned plea and heartfelt letter to the Ford family and 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 tell them how to fix this. All right. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back. More NFL right after this. All right, we're back here on a mid-December edition, actually episode 120. Uh, as we approach 4,000 uh, downloads/slash listens, which I know doesn't sound like a huge amount, um, but as you know, this is a labor of love for me. <laughs> this is not my 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 vocation; it is my avocation. Uh, And so I just want to thank everybody out there who's ever uh, listened to, uh, who's a uh, repeat listener, a loyal listener, or if you only listen once, I I just want to say thanks to everybody out there. Um, Again, 4,000 in a little over a year's time, and this is episode 120. All right, so we talked about the NFL playoff picture, which of course we know the Lions are not even remotely close to being part of. Um, and we talked about a little bit the Steelers and their stability and continuity. So let's get to them. The Sunday night game against Buffalo, lots of playoff implications on the line. Buffalo won the game, um, 24-17. Um, defensive struggle throughout most of the most of the game. Steelers defense played, uh, I thought, very well at times. It was in Heinz Field. Um, They did a pretty good job on on Josh Allen, the quarterback for the Bills. You know, extremely mobile, big, strong-armed guy who's, you know, still learning as he goes. You can see the talent is there. Uh, And if if he can figure out the mental side of the game, he could be an extremely dangerous quarterback here moving forward. Because he has all the physical traits that you want. He's about 6'4", 6'5", about 240 pounds. He's fast. He's got a big arm. Uh, You know, all the things we talked about when he was coming out of Wyoming. Um, and again, you know, coaching, right? Brian Dable, their offense coordinator, they've they designed an offense to fit him. Now, I don't love their receivers. It's a strange group. They're all very short. I understand, you know, they made mention of the Smurfs, uh, the Washington group back in the day in the 80s when Thiesman was the quarterback there. Yeah, they also had Art Monk, who was like 6'2, was sort of like one of the very first kind of big receivers. Uh, he was kind of, he, he, you know, he was kind of a big receiver before that was like in vogue. Uh, they also had Art Monk. Buffalo didn't have anybody like that, you know. They've got John Brown's five ten, Cole Beasley's 5'8". You know, all, all their guys for the most part are tiny. They had Zay Jones, but they they decided they didn't like him. And now he's in Oakland. Um, so you know, they've got the kid Devin Singletary, the, the the rookie running back who I like, who although you know fumbled the ball a couple times got lucky that they got it back once, and then the ageless wonder, Frank Gore. You know, they need to surround him with, with some better weapons, is what I'm saying, for next year. But that Buffalo defense is outstanding. You look up and down, uh, you know, at all three levels, D-line, linebacker, and secondary, um, all kinds of good draft picks there, right? Ed Oliver, rookie at a D-tackle out of Houston, who the Lions probably should have taken over uh, T.J. Hawkins in the tight end out of Iowa, Um They've got uh, Tremaine Edmonds, a middle linebacker, 6'5", 250, runs like, runs like a 4540 and he's 21, folks. Still figuring out how to play. Uh, Matt Milano, linebacker out of BC, I believe was a third-round pick a couple of years ago. Um, Tredavious White, a corner out of LSU, one of the top corners in the league. He had two picks in that game. Um, Jordan Poyer, excellent uh, safety, um, also was a draft pick not that long ago. Um, they've got good players up and down that roster that were draft picks, uh, Manny, uh, Shaq Lawson, d lineman out of Clemson, uh, and then they've taken, you know, guys from other teams like Jordan Phillips, a big, strong defensive tackle who played in Miami, it was a, a high draft pick in Miami, I think his second round pick a couple of years ago, has always kind of had effort slash, uh, you know. Personality issues, but he's found a homie. I think he's got eight and a half sacks now for them out of the defensive tackle position. So Buffalo's defense excellent. Steelers defense excellent. And by the way, that game Sunday night was sort of the the Edmonds brothers bowl because you had Tremaine Edmonds, a middle linebacker, Buffalo start, and then for the Steelers you got Terrell Edmonds, who's a rookie safety out of Virginia Tech. They all played at Virginia Tech, by the way. Um, And then you had uh, Trey Edmonds who's a backup running back for the Steelers, who started his career at Virginia Tech and finished his career at my alma mater, University of Maryland. Uh, and then their father, Farrell Edmonds, who I knew, who was at University of Maryland when I was there, was a stud tight end and second-round draft pick of the Dolphins back in the day, was at the game. He's their father. So it was sort of the uh, an Edmonds family reunion uh, on Sunday night, which was kind of cool to see. Um, but Steelers' defense is outstanding too. I mean, T.J. Watt, stud, Cam Hayward, stud, uh, Devin Bush, another guy the line should have drafted, but he's not a scheme fit for Matt Patricia's precious defense, even though he's a middle linebacker who's all over the field, makes plays all over the place, something Jared Davis can only dream of doing, um, is a stud, Vince Williams is a good player, Bud Dupree, outside linebacker, pass rusher uh, extraordinaire out of Kentucky, good player. Joe Hayden is playing out of his mind for them. Guy was a high first-round pick for the Browns about seven years ago now. He's playing great for the Steelers. Um, so their defense is, is really good, too. So it was a good defensive battle. You know, it was fun. It was a well pretty well-played game. Uh, you know, the problem is the Steelers' offense is just is struggling right now. I mean, you know, listen, Devlin Hodges is a nice story. He's an undrafted free agent from Samford. Um and the Bills basically took away and then and they still don't have Juju Smith Schuster, their best receiver. So, you know, the S. James Connor was back, but um they didn't really get him going. Steelers offensive line kind of got handled by the Bills defensive front. Um so the Bills ten and four guaranteed in the playoffs. Steelers still alive at eight and five. Um no, sorry, eight and six. Let's go to that right now. Let's go to the standings. Nice math on my part there, by the way. So the Steelers are eight and six. They've got the Jets this week, and then we talked about that last game of the year against the Ravens. Now, again, the Ravens are twelve and two. Um, if they win one more game, they will be the number one seed in the AFC because the Patriots, the best they can do is thirteen and three. Baltimore get to 13 wins, but Baltimore beat New England head-to-head. So, theoretically, that last game of the year for the Ravens, and and Lamar Jackson's had some some injury issues pop up here recently. So, theoretically, that last game of the year for the Ravens could be meaningless to them as far as playoff positioning and seeding. However, I still contend that they will want to beat the Steelers if that means knocking the Steelers out of the playoff hunt. Another big game in the AFC playoff picture this past Sunday was... Houston versus Tennessee um, Houston went up 14-0 Tennessee battled back Houston ended up winning that game It's a huge win for them They're now 9-5 Tennessee's 8-6 and Tennessee of course still alive For a wild card spot The last wild card spot uh, Because Buffalo's ensured themselves The first wild card spot I believe If not the first one Certainly a wild card spot Because they've got 10 wins uh, The Browns lost Arizona They're done 6-8 and eight. See you later uh Colts got hammered by Drew Brees, who had a performance for the ages 29 for 30 on Monday night. Um, four touchdowns is now the all-time leader in touchdown passes. Congratulations to him. Uh, Kansas City's 10 and four. They've won their division. So right now you've got the Patriots in, Ravens in, Bill's in, Chiefs in. So you've got essentially vying for the last playoff spot are the Steelers at 8 and 6 and the Titans at 8 and 6 and right now the Houston is at 9 and 5 would win the division but Tennessee could still win the division. So, you know, if Tennessee were to win out and Houston were to lose out, right? Then Tennessee would go by virtue of being a 10 and 6 team and Houston would be 9 and 7. Uh, the Steelers, if they went out, would get to ten and six. And let's see, the Steelers' conference record is six and four. Tennessee's is six and five. Steelers have two more conference games left in the in the Jets and the Ravens. So that would get them to eight and four in the conference. They would go. I'm pretty sure. Let's take a quick look here at Tennessee's schedule and see who they play down the stretch here in these last two weeks. So Tennessee has the Saints NFC game and then at the Texans. It's going to be tough. So So first of all, the Saints game is going to be a hard game even though it's home. Um, it's going to be a tough game obviously. Although the Saints, you know, that's they'll be ripe for the picking in that game. Outside Weather might be bad. Certainly, should probably be a little chilly. And coming off the huge emotional win with Drew Brees and you know doing blown kisses to the fans and rightfully so, you know the record-setting game. Um, short week. Uh, Saints be ripe for the picking. I, I'd love to. I, I got to see. I'd love to see what the line is in that game. I, if, if, if particularly if Tennessee is a home dog in that, I would love them. And then at the Texans, so um, so Tennessee then the most conference wins they can get to is seven. So if the Steelers win out, they're in. Because even if Tennessee wins out, they're going to be ten and six, but seven and five in the conference. And if the Steelers win out, they'll be ten and six and eight and four in the conference. So Steelers control their own destiny. They went out, they're in. They're, they're the, the last wild card spot. Now, Tennessee could still get in by virtue, obviously, of winning the division. So, they would have to beat Houston, obviously, the last game of the year, and then hope that Houston loses this week to... And let's see who Houston is playing this week. Houston is playing Tampa Bay, at Tampa Bay. Now, Tampa Bay, not very good. They are 7-7. Seven and seven. You know, they beat up on my crappy Lions last week. Um, you know, they, they beaten some, uh, they, they, they weirdly did beat the Titans though. Oh no, sorry. That's not who I'm looking at the wrong thing. Um, so Tampa Bay offense is pretty good as far as they put up a lot of points and yards. Um, you know, Jameis Winston has put up a ton of points and they put up and put up a ton of yards and thrown a bunch of touchdowns. He's also... Number one in the NFL in turnovers, I believe he now has thrown 23 interceptions, and I think has seven lost fumbles for a total of 30, which is insane. That's like that's like late 70s, early 80s numbers <laughs> that just don't exist today. Um, so it's going to be tough for so the, so the Texans have Tampa and the Titans. So let's see if even if the Texans were to lose this game. And beat Tennessee at home Last game of the year That gets them to 10 wins They would be in So Tennessee needs some help They need Houston to lose this week And then they got to go beat Houston Because in that being Houston 9-7 And Tennessee's got to win out To get to 9 uh, No, sorry, they wouldn't have to uh, My bad if Houston loses Yeah, they need Houston to lose two games Houston wins this week, Tennessee's pretty much screwed. They can't win the division. Cause Houston would get to yeah Houston has a four and one record in the division. Tennessee's two and three. And they play Houston, but the best they can do is three and three, and then Houston would be four and two. So Houston's got to lose a game here for Tennessee. For in order for Tennessee to get in. That way. Steelers again. Control their own destiny, they win out, they're in, but if they split and go nine and seven and Tennessee wins out, obviously and goes 10 and six, they're in. If Tennessee splits and goes nine and seven. Conference record depends on where those wins come if Tennessee loses to Houston, their conference record would be six and six. Steelers conference record would be seven and five, so they would still go. So it's a little dicey for Tennessee here. They need a lot of help. That's the bottom line. They need help. Now you go over to the NFC, you've got the Cowboys at um with a huge win Sunday over the Rams that that's that's the Cowboys team everybody'd been expecting to see right offense consistent you know they got a little lucky in a couple plays right two guys run into each other get a a, a walk in you know 50 yard touchdown from Ta'von Austin and done anything all year for the Cowboys uh you know Witten makes a crazy one-handed catch behind his back practically but look Cowboys played well. Don't take anything away from them. They played well. Uh, the defense made play Sean Lee with a throwback vintage performance. Played out of his mind with an interception and a sack. Who's was all over the place. Uh, the Rams, who had been rolling, looked really bad. Uh, Cowboys looked great. So they're 7-7. Seven and seven. The Eagles needed a, basically a last-second touchdown against the Redskins. Give the Redskins credit, by the way. They have played hard ever since they got rid of Gruden. The team has played hard. They're not very good, but they've played hard. And they had pieces on that defense, particularly all those guys from Alabama, but uh, they they played hard, and the Eagles still do not look like a playoff team to me. They won; you give them credit for the win. It was in Washington, although eighty percent of that stadium was Eagles fans, because the Washington fans hate Snyder, their owner, so much that they. I, I told you when the Lions played the Redskins earlier this year fifty percent or more of the Stadium was Lions fans. Because everybody's fed up with Snyder. And the just the the, the once proud franchise that was the Washington franchise has now been you know reduced to laughing stock. So the Eagles are seven and seven, Cowboys are seven and seven. They play I believe they play this week, which if that is the case, then uh, Dallas, I believe by virtue If Dallas wins that game Let's just take a look here really quickly Dallas is in the playoffs Regardless of what happens Last week, let's just take a look Real quick Okay, Houston, Tampa Bay is Saturday so That's got playoff implications Buffalo at New England has playoff implications If Buffalo wins that game uh, they'd be eleven and four and the Patriots would be eleven and four. Buffalo could still win the division. It's not it's not over yet. So um and then you got the Rams at San Francisco. I mean the Rams I think are technically still, you know, hanging on by a thread here as a playoff team. And San Francisco and Seattle are tied at eleven and three, and they both have an eight and two conference record and they both have a three and one division record. So that game has playoff implications. So NFL, very fortunate right now. Very happy that the Saturday games, where they always do this late in the year, they move games up onto Saturday, which I always like. Um, all three of them have playoff implications. And then Sunday, uh, you've got... Yeah, Dallas at Philly. So that's that's for all the marbles. Dallas wins that game. They win the division because... They would be five and zero in division, and the Eagles would be four and one. And so, even if Dallas lost the last game of the year at eight and eight, and Philly won the last game of the year to be eight and eight, adios. Better division record. Dallas obviously would have beaten Philly twice head to head. So that game's for all the marbles on Sunday. Now, let me see here. That is a one o'clock game. Yeah. Oh no, four twenty-five. So that'll be that'll be the national Fox game for sure. Okay. So that's an NFC East playoff picture. Dallas wins this uh, this Sunday and they're in. Sure make AG very happy. And look, you never know. Dallas could get on a roll. I mean, we talked about it all year, they're a very strange team. They've got plenty of talent. Um they look great at times and terrible at times often in the same game. Um so, you know, we'll see. And I I I the the Eagles just to me, I mean, first of all, I know they've had a million injuries. Um, you know, now Noel Alshon Jeffrey, Deshaun Jackson hasn't played forever, but whatever. But I mean, you know, Greg Ward, who was a quarterback at Houston about four or five years ago, is a practice squad guy, caught the game-winning touchdown against the Redskins. I mean, that's... That, <laughs> the, the Eagles are really down to the you know the bottom of the barrel here as far as... And no, no disrespect to Greg Ward. I actually liked him a lot coming out of college as just an athlete. I watched him several times in college at Houston. Um, but... You know, that's not exactly how they drew it up there in Philly. You know, they're supposed to have Alshon Jeffrey and Al Galore and Deshaun Jackson as the take the top off the defense guy. And then, you know, rookies like Arcega Whiteside, you know, maybe contributing a little bit here and there. You know, Whiteside has had to take on a much bigger role. Just talked about Greg Ward. Um, the kid Sanders, the running back from Penn State, though, uh, is you know, now that he's getting the line share of the work, has looked very, very good. Carson Wentz still continues to be very up and down. I know they've had injuries up and down that offensive line. You know, Lane Johnson's been in and out. Jason Peters has been in and out. Center's been in and out. So um, that's that's probably part of it. But, but Wentz just does not look like the same guy uh, that he was before that the the major knee injury he had a couple of years ago. Uh, in the North, you got Green Bay's clinched the playoff spot. Minnesota's ten and four. Um, Green Bay 4-0 in the division, though. Vikings 2-2. So Green Bay certainly controls their own destiny there. And the South, you've got the Saints wrapped that up, 11-3. So the Saints have won the division. They're now trying to play for home field. So this game Sunday means something to them at Tennessee. But like I said, it's got hangover, trap game written all over it. And Tennessee needs the game more than the Saints because Saints you know have clinched their division. So the Saints will play a home playoff game. question is... Can they get home field throughout, which is certainly what they want, because that's a tough place to play in the dome. And then you got Seattle eleven three, San Francisco eleven and three. Again, both eight and two in the conference, both three and one in the division. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and assume that those guys play. No, have they have they played twice already? By the way, Green Bay is at Minnesota on Monday night also has playoff implications. So this this is a good week for the NFL as far as national TV games are concerned. You're going to have three on Saturday, all have t- uh, playoff implications. The late game Sunday, which most of the country will get, which is Dallas at Philly, playoff implications. Obviously, Dallas can clinch a playoff berth with that win. And then the Monday night game. I mean, most of these Monday night games lately have been, you know, pretty uh, nondescript. You've got Uh, Green Bay at Minnesota Also with playoff implications So very good week for the NFL when it comes to that Um, But let's see here We've got uh, Arizona plays Seattle this week So let's take a look at week 17 Shall we? See what that last week looks like From a schedule perspective Um, Yeah, San Francisco at Seattle 425. That game certainly could be to determine who wins that division and then also who maybe has home field throughout. So, still lots yet to be determined. I mean, yes, Seattle's in, San Francisco's in, the Saints are in, the Packers are in. Uh, but, yes, a lot still to be determined as far as home field advantage is concerned. All right, short break and then back with a little NBA and Major League Baseball right after this. Okay, we're back here on a mid-December episode 120 of Jamal About Sports, and we get to the NBA and the Knicks, so the Knicks finally fired David Fisdale, and look, I'd be the first to admit I got that dead wrong. I was totally on board, I, I remembered him from he did that press conference when he was coach of the Grizzlies when they made the playoffs against San Antonio, and he gave uh, you know, they had gotten pretty much refed out of the building, right? And San Antonio got in the foul line like something like 40 times, and, and Memphis went in like 10. And Memphis was a pretty good team. They weren't as good as San Antonio, and he knew it. But, you know, and he gave Popovich his props. And he goes, look, I'm, you know, I'm just a young guy here, and Pop is the guy. But, you know, they went to the foul line 40 times. We went 10. I'm paraphrasing now. I don't know the exact phrase and the exact numbers. So he goes, how's that for data? And then he got up and walked away. And I loved it. There's a young guy fighting for his team, He's making fun of analytics, which you know I like. So I loved it. And the guy came. He had the blessing of Pat Riley. He was an assistant with the Heat. LeBron loved him. All these guys loved him. So I was on board. I'm like, this is great. And then, listen, I understand the roster was garbage last year. But, again, I never saw him take control. I never saw him institute consequences for poor play. or, Or even more so than that, Lack of energy, like with guys like Kevin Knox, for instance, right? And selfish play and all kinds of junk that went on last year. I never saw him, you know, exert his his, his influence. He seemed overwhelmed by the whole thing. And listen, I understand you lose that many games, it's overwhelming, but sorry. It's your job as a head coach. There's certain things you can control, and to me, he didn't seem to be able to control those things. Again, like playing time and demanding effort. Again, defense does not, I mean, yes, you have to have some ability. If you're big and slow-footed, you know, and you're playing against a guy who's smaller, quicker, faster than you, or taller and stronger than you, and you're short, yes. Okay, but this is the NBA. Most of these guys are good athletes. Defense comes down to effort and want to, right? And the Knicks showed none of it last year. None. Zero. And you saw a lot of it again this year. And after back-to-back 40-point losses, they got rid of him. Now, look. Steve Mills, how he is still employed and has the job that he has as president of the Knicks, one of the greatest mysteries in the history of pro sports. This guy has been around for all of the bad stuff that has happened at the Garden. All of it. He's a joke. I have no idea why he's still here. Scott Perry, the GM that he hired, who knows? But the fact that Steve Mills hired him certainly is not uh, an endorsement, shall we say doesn't make me feel good about Scott Perry. You know, it's a mild success as an assistant years ago under Dumars in Detroit. Didn't seem to do a very good job in Orlando. And so-so mixed results when he was with Sacramento. So I would think that an entire new front office regime, yet again, should be in order at the end of this year. But I will say this. This guy, Mike Miller, that they hired who was an assistant on the staff this year, who'd been the, their, their developmental league coach for the last four years, 55 years old, well thought of in coaching circles. The Knicks are 3-3 three and three since he got there, and they've been competitive in every game except one. Now, I understand that that's a bit of an indictment, right? They've been competitive. But sadly, that's where we are with the Knicks. I mean, again, they lost back-to-back 40-point games. I mean, this, this, that doesn't happen in college. Let alone in the NBA. Or at least it shouldn't happen. But it doesn't even really happen in college. So I have no issues with the fact that Knicks got rid of Fisdale. Is it all his fault? Of course not. Absolutely not. But, you know, 4-16 and 16 or whatever they were. Or 4-20, whatever the horror show of the record was when he got fired. I mean, it speaks for itself. Now, is this a a, a misshapen, ill-advised roster with 17 power forwards? (laughs) Yes, it is. But there are guys on this team with some talent. I mean, Marcus Morris, he's not a star. He's got talent. Julius Randall has talent. Now, he's the classic best guy in a bad team kind of guy, and he puts up largely meaningless numbers, but he's not devoid of talent. You know, R.J. Barrett, the rookie lottery pick, you know, he's he's looked like a rookie. He's looked good at times, he's looked lost at times. But the Knicks point guard situation continues to be a mess. It's looked better lately with Alfred Payton finally getting healthy and, and providing some stability. And then Dennis Smith Jr. looked very good last night, granted against the Hawks, so you take it with a grain of salt. You know, Nilakina, again, nice kid, works hard, plays plays, you know, decent defense, tries hard on defense. He's just not a very skilled player offensively. He's just not. So I'm not gonna pretend that this is a great roster and that Fisdale, you know, should have they, they should have been a fifty win team, but I mean again, the record speaks for itself, and again the the lack of competitiveness in these games is alarming. So they've been they're three and three since Miller took over. They just waxed the Hawks last night, although big deal. Both teams were six and twenty one going into the game. And I know everybody loves Trey Young. ESPN creation, Trey Young, the little diminutive point guard who shoots 75 times a game. And look, he's been way better in the pros than I thought it would be. So uh, I guess I'll eat a little crow on that. I predicted he'd be out of the league in three years. Doesn't look like that's going to be the case at all. But I mean, and, I, and I'm not saying it's all his fault. But first of all, he can't guard anybody. I mean, the Knicks point guards all look great last night. There's no co- it's not a coincidence that it was because they're going up against Trey Young. And for all of his scoring and all of his supposed greatness, they're, they're now 6-22 and gave up 143 points to the Knicks of all teams last night. The Knicks had 77 points at halftime. But it'll be interesting to see if the Knicks play 500 from here on out. And we'll see if, if they if they can or not. I mean, look, they beat the Kings in Sacramento. Kings are okay. They're not great. They had a lead late against Denver, who is good, in Denver, and then, of course, couldn't score for the last five minutes of the game. I mean, and that's the Knicks' real biggest problem, is they, they don't have a guy that can take over a game late in a close game. They don't. You know, Julius Randle is not the answer. He will dribble around for 17 to 18 seconds on the shot clock and then to commit a turnover. And Marcus Morris, again, nice player, and there may be games where he just has a hot hand and can make a couple of big buckets for you late. But he's not a go. He's nobody's idea of a go-to guy, for sure. He's a complimentary piece on a good team. But if they manage to play around 500 ball for the rest of the year, and again, at least you've seen these guys now compete. You see that he benched Dennis Smith for two games. Now Dennis Smith came back and played well last night, again against the Hawks. So grain of salt. But you know Kevin Knox who. Listen, I, I, you can't get him out of here fast enough for me. I understand it's only his second year. I understand he's only 20. Again, he looks like somebody who wants nothing to do with playing basketball. I know he had a good game last night too. Again, it was in the second half in garbage time against a terrible team. So uh, There's nothing for me. Meaningless to me. But if he gets these other guys playing hard consistently night in, night out and competitive and trying on defense and they've finish up somewhere around 500 during his tenure. You know what? Maybe you resist the temptation and make another big splash and maybe you let this guy keep his job. Now, the tricky thing is I still think you should hire a new front office and so you're going to have to leave it up to that front office to make a determination as whether or not to keep Mike Miller as the coach. But at least it provides some reason to pay attention to this team. But overall, by the way, the NBA, and I know I've been critical of the NBA in, in recent years. And I know I, I'm, I guess I sound like a, a grumpy old man. But the NBA, as of today, is absolute trash. It's garbage. It's garbage. It's a terrible, terrible product. You have about four or five teams worth watching that are any good, and the rest of the, 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 the sport is a joke. To wit. Let's take a look at the Eastern Conference. Oh, they want to do it by that. I'm going to do by division. Okay. The Eastern Conference, the Atlantic, is actually pretty good. You've got Philly at 28, Celtics 17 and seven, the Raptors are 18 and eight, and the Nets, after a little bit some hiccups early, 15 and 12. By the way, playing very well without Kyrie Irving, which I had that. But then you've got the Knicks at seven and 21. In the Central. You've got two games, two teams over 500. Now the Bucks are great at 24 and 4. Pacers really good at 19 and 9. Pistons 11 and 16. Bulls at 10 and 19. Cavaliers 6 and 21. And then in the Southeast, other than the Heat who are 19 and 8 and a testament to what a good stable organization looks like and player development cuz I bet you can can't name 3 guys on that team and yet they're 19 and 8. Magic are 12 and 15, Hornets are 13 and 17, Wizards 8 and 17, Hawks 6 and 22. That is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 teams out of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. 8 of the 15 teams under 500, and some of those teams woefully under 500 like the Knicks at 7 and 21 the Cavaliers at 6 and 21 the Hawks at 6 and 22 Washington at eight and 17 Chicago at 10 and 19. I mean are you kidding me that is a bunch of really bad teams now let's go out to the west Denver 17 and eight nice team Utah 16 and 11 nice team Oklahoma 12 and 14 okay under 500 not awful and it's a long season still got 70 games left but still under 500. Portland eleven and sixteen, Minnesota ten and fifteen. You go to the Pacific. Lakers are great at twenty four and four. Clippers really good twenty one and eight. Sacramento twelve and fifteen. Phoenix eleven and sixteen. Golden State five and twenty three. Now look, I get it. Golden T- Team's whole team is hurt. No Curry, no Thompson, Durant left. Even D'Angelo Russell, who they got in the off missed some time. Draymond Green's missed some time. I get it. They, they, you know what? The Warriors had a great run. They they're missing pretty much their whole team, whatever. But the fact remains, they're a bad team. They're five and twenty-three. And then in the Southwest, Mavs eighteen and eight, Rockets eighteen and nine, Spurs ten and sixteen. Again, you forgive the Spurs. They went twenty years in a row with winning fifty games. Memphis, and, and by the way, the Spurs still could turn it around and be at least competitive 500. But for now, they're 10-16. and 16. Memphis, 10-17. New Orleans, 6-22. New Orleans has lost 13 games in a row. And they got Zion Williamson. He hasn't played a, a, a minute yet because he had a knee injury. So you add that up, that's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Nine teams under 500 in the West. 17 17 out of the... Thirty teams in the NBA are under 500. More than half. not a good league, folks. Sorry, I understand they like to promote it with now it's now it's dynamic duos. They used to be you had to have a big three, and now it's dynamic duos. So you got LeBron and Anthony Davis in LA, and you have Kawhi and Paul George in uh, also in LA. And you have Luka Doncic and supposedly Porzingis, although please spare me the Porzingis is garbage. He's been okay for the Mavericks, not great, uh, but anyway. But that's how they promote him. So it's you know Porzingis and Doncic in Dallas, and Westbrook and Harden in Houston, and uh, the Celtics have supposedly you know Tatum and I guess well uh, who, who Jalen Brown I guess is supposed to be some sort of a superstar. Please. Uh, nice player, but not a superstar You know, Philly's got Simmons And uh, And Bede And Toronto Actually, Toronto doesn't really have anybody That's a star And I mean, Milwaukee doesn't have a dynamic duo either They've got Giannis, and he's great um, A good supporting cast But that's how they like to promote the league now But I'm telling you It's just not good It's not a great league It's really not And I've been talking about this for years and the problem with the NBA is their draft system is so broken, it's ridiculous. You know, the NFL, you have a good draft, you can get good right away. You can go from being, look at the Saints a few years ago, right? The draft where they got um, Lattimore and Marcus Williams and Ramchick and all those guys, that, that, that draft, they, you know, they went from being middling to really good in one year you know the you go you can go all the way back to the 49ers the year they got Ronnie Lott and I think uh Carlton Williamson and, and Eric Wright and a bunch of really good players. I mean, if you draft well, you can go from being bad to good quick in the NFL. The NBA, first of all, I mean, it's only two rounds, but and you know, but again, the rosters are smaller. It's five guys on a team, not 11 or 22 as the NFL is, 11 on offense, 11 on defense. So, really, you know, if you get two impact players back to back years, you should go. You should not be bad anymore. But again, this the system is so broken with this one and done. These kids coming in the NBA, they're not even close to being ready to, to to contribute. A few are here or there, but the majority of them are not. All right. Finally, we finish up with the Mets. So, the Mets, it would appear, are going to finally be sold. To Stephen A. Cohen, who's a shady hedge fund billionaire, but a lifelong Mets fan, who it would appear money will not be an issue with him anymore. Although it's not going to be official, supposedly for five years, but you know the Wilpons are going to keep their 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 titles in in, in name only. You know, but it still has to be approved by Major League Baseball, which is I guess not a fait accompli, given the fact that uh, this Steve Cohen had some insider trading uh, issues years back. Um, listen, you, you, to be very cynical here. Give me a crook who's a successful crook over a crook who's unsuccessful, and that's all this is. Will are crooks. So I don't care what anybody says. They can they can claim ignorance and, and plead uh, you know innocence all they want about the Madoff thing. You know when the whole world is getting four to seven return. Percent returns on their money and you're getting 15 to 20 and, you don't, and you're don't, you going to pretend like nothing shady there, please knock it off so um, I for one can't wait for this to happen but of course so far the Mets have been infuriatingly cheap and poorly run, Brody Van Wagenen the snake oil salesman extraordinaire horror show so far they let Zach Wheeler walk to the Phillies for 118 million dollars By the way, Garrett Cole just got, what, $340 million from the Yankees? Now, Garrett Cole was great last year, and he was great the year before, and he's still 28 or 29, so you would think he's still in his prime. But is he $200 million better than Zach Wheeler? Uh, No. $118 million is a bargain now. Jacob Degrom's 137 million dollars, whatever he got, is a bargain. So you have the best pitcher in the National League, or one of, in Degrom on your team, who's now a bargain based on what the market says. And you don't even they didn't even make an offer to Zach Wheeler, but they gave Rick Porcello one year, 10 million dollars, because he was good three years ago. And they gave Michael Wacha, by the way, a former Brody Van Wagenen client, one year, three million dollars, but could earn another seven in incentives. Who's been, you know, who also had a really good year three years ago. Now listen, Porcello might be a pretty decent fifth starter, right? He's an innings eater, he's durable, but he also had a a 5.5 ERA for the Red Sox last year. I mean, you know, and Waka has been hurt the last couple of years. He made 20 starts last year. And he was okay, he was not great. Again, very very fifth starter-esque. But again, instead of just spending money on your own guy who wanted to be here, and I bet you the Mets could have got him for $100 million. If the Mets would have offered five years, $100 million, he probably would have jumped at it. He never wanted to leave Wheeler. He loved being here. But the Mets are run like a mom and pop shop. So that's what you're going to get. All right, that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, thanks for listening. Uh, we're probably off next week with the holidays. So uh, Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah to all those out there that celebrate. And until next time, peace out.